We have two more studies in our series from the first epistle of John. An epistle, as you may recall, we introduced some time ago by speaking of this epistle, as you see here, as the epistle of certainties, because of the absolute certainty with which John expresses himself about certain spiritual matters, that we can know that we know the Lord, for example, if we keep his commandments, 1 John 2 and verse 3. That we do not have to speculate about our relationship with God the Father and Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit because we have that revealed to us which, if we follow it and obey it, gives us the certainty that we are approved by God. How thankful we are that we have that certainty based not upon a better felt than told experience, something that is totally subjective, but upon that which is absolutely objective, that is the clearly revealed Word of God. You remember that as we began in our first study in the first chapter, John wrote that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the Word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And then he reiterates, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you. For what purpose, John? That you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 4 of chapter 1, he wrote, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Fullness of joy belongs to the child of God who knows that he knows the Lord. And we can know that we know him if indeed we keep his commandments, 1 John 2, verse 3. John has a great deal to write in this epistle about sin, as you recall. The fact that he wrote so that we might not sin, verse 1 of chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That is, that you might not commit a single sin. That's the goal. That's the aim. But then he adds quickly, and if anyone sins, recognizing that we are human, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In fact, in verse 10 of chapter 1, he had said, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. In chapter 3, he reminds us concerning the subject of sin that whoever has been born of God, verse 9 of chapter 3, does not sin, does not commit a sin. No, the idea here is does not continue in sin. The tense indicates he who is born of God does not keep on sinning. He cannot live a, a life of sin any longer. Why? For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin. That is, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And so if we have been born again, we do not continue in sin. As we come to chapter 5 and verses 16 and 17, we return to the subject of sin, John does, as we look at just these two verses tonight. Verses that have been given various interpretations by various commentators, and it is admitted that they can certainly be difficult, but 
can they be understood? I believe so. John, as he returns to the subject of sin, says this in verse 16 of chapter 5. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. But then John adds, there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. First of all, we need to realize the close relationship between this verse we've just read and the verse with which we concluded our study last time. That's verse 15. Remember that John there reminds his readers that in verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so he says we know that he hears us, and we know that if we ask in accordance with his will, he will grant our petitions in accordance with his will, obviously, as we stressed in our study last time. And there's a close relationship to that theme and what he says here. For now, he introduces us to a brother, obviously, uh, a member of the body of Christ, and the anyone who sees this brother would, according to the context, have to be another brother or sister in Christ, another another member of the Lord's church. And so if one member of the body of Christ sees another member of the body of Christ sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Now, what is this sin, or is it a specific sin? The answer from the context is no, it is not a specific sin. Because the participle here, sinning, indicates, and brother is in that same uh, form, indicates literally a sinning brother. Not a brother who is involved in a particular sin, but one who is simply involved in sin. In other words, a sinning brother. A brother or sister, obviously the case would also apply to, who is involved in sin. What sin? Not the specific sin, not the unpardonable sin, as is sometimes brought up for discussion, but someone involved in sin. Someone who is involved in sin, and here's another brother in Christ who sees this brother who is involved in sin. In this case, initially, it is a sin which does not lead to death. And we need to then ask, what is the sin, or a sin, what is a sin that leads to death? We'll talk about that in a moment. We mentioned the unpardonable sin, and really, you will never find that expression used in Scripture, the unpardonable sin. There is clearly unpardoned sin, and unpardoned sin is obviously any sin that a person will not repent of. If you won't repent of your sins, then you can't be pardoned. But when we talk about what is called the unpardonable sin, it takes us to Matthew chapter 12, and Mark's account also deals with it as well. And many times, this passage we're looking at in John, 1 John 5, 16, is equated to that uh, situation in Matthew 12 and also in Mark chapter 3. But there's a difference. 
In Matthew chapter 12 and also Mark 3 and Mark's account of this same situation, Jesus is dealing there in the context with the Pharisees of his day. Here, John in 1 John 5.16 is dealing with two Christians who are involved. And so the context is different. Also, the context of Matthew 12 is a context where those Pharisees, many of them of Jesus' day, were accusing him of having a demon. And that all that he was doing was the result of his having a demon. And so Jesus says, verse 31 of Matthew 12, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, notice, either in this age or in the age to come. What two ages was Jesus referring to? He was referring, first of all, to the age in which he lived, the Mosaic age. During that dispensation, when Jesus came and came to his own people, and for the most part his own people rejected him, and in this context they rejected him specifically by saying, the works that you do, you do by Beelzebub. You are doing by the power of the devil. What they were guilty of doing was attributing the power of God to the power of Satan. It was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What Jesus did was by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by the power of the devil. And so their blasphemy was against the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were attributing the works they saw Jesus do to the devil. Well, literally, that's not possible today from a literal standpoint, is it? Because Jesus isn't here doing those miracles. And so it's not possible for someone to see Jesus doing miracles today and say to Jesus that he is doing them by the power of the devil. But that's what this is here. If you need further and to get further uh, elucidation on this subject, in Mark's account of this matter, there's a statement that is specifically made that does shed a great deal of light on what this sin or blasphemy against the Spirit was at that time. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 3 at verse 28 beginning, Jesus here says, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Anyone who rejects the, re, the, uh, the teaching of the Holy Spirit, and specifically, in this case, they rejected the works of the Spirit that were being done by Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice how inspiration comments on the words that Jesus just spoke. Again, verse 29, But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Now listen to verse 30. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. That gives you a description of what it is to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It was to attribute the works of Jesus to the works of Satan. That's what they did. That's what Jesus condemned. That's what he called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, by inspiration himself, tells us that's what it was in verse 30 when he says, because they said he has an unclean spirit. 
So, do you need to be worried about committing the unpardonable sin? No. No. You can certainly be guilty of committing unpardoned sin because any sin is unpardoned of which you will not repent or from which anyone will not repent. But the unpardonable sin, that phrase, as we said, is not found in Scripture. And the context in which, from which that phrase is derived by many is a context where literally the Pharisees of Jesus' day were attributing his miracles to the devil. And that was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now back to 1 John 5.16, and the difference we see in this situation and the one we have just examined, as we've already said, is clearly here are two brothers who are involved. Here's a brother, if anyone, the context would indicate that anyone is a brother, a member of the church. If anyone sees another brother, a sinning brother, in other words, he's involved in sin. What sin? Not the sin against the Holy Spirit specifically, not a specific sin. No, no specific sin is under consideration here in this verse. Just sin in principle is under consideration here. Any sin in which a brother is involved, he's sinning, a sinning brother literally is the idea here. Who the one, the one we have before us here in this verse is a sinning brother. He's a brother who is involved in sin. Here's another brother who is able clearly, obviously, to see that he is involved in sin. He knows that he is in sin. Should that brother pray for the sinning brother? Yes, under certain circumstances. What would those circumstances be? The sin is not unto death. Well, what does not unto death mean? Well, we see that there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. So the situation we have before us is we have a sinning brother. We can pray for him if his sin is not unto death. But if his sin is unto death, there's no point in praying for him because there will be no forgiveness forthcoming. How do we determine then what the sin unto death is and what the sin not unto death is? Well, we can stay here in 1 John and see that. Back in 1 John chapter 1, at verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's the key statement. John says, the same writer, the same writer says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. No limitation whatsoever. But the stipulation is confession and obviously repentance. One must repent of sin. So therefore, we get some insight into what the sin not leading to death is. It is a sin that a brother will repent of and confess. Remember James 5, 
In verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And so we're admonished by James in James 5.16 to confess our sins and to pray for one another. doesn't mean we confess private sins publicly to the congregation, but the, the principle is that sin needs to be confessed as publicly as it's committed. But if a brother is willing to repent of the sin in which we find him, and we are able to see it, and he's willing to repent of that and confess that sin, then we're to pray for him. And James reinforces that in the text we've just looked at. But what if that brother will not repent, he will not confess that sin, then what? Then what use will it be to pray if he persists in his sin? So what do we have then in summary? Here, what do we have? God forgives every sin a brother will confess. 1 John 1 verse 8 makes that clear. But the verse we're looking at here, 1 John 5, 16, makes it clear there is a sin that God will not forgive. There is sin that God will not forgive. Notice it again. If we confess our sins... God forgives. But there's a sin God will not forgive. Therefore, what is that sin? It's the sin the brother will not confess. If God will forgive every sin, if God will forgive every sin that we're willingly to, willing to confess, but there's a sin he won't forgive, what do we conclude that sin is? It has to be the sin that we won't confess. But any sin we will confess, God will forgive. That's what John tells us in 1 John 1 eight. But the same writer tells us right here there's a sin God won't forgive. Not a specific sin, but sin period. What sin is that? Sin we won't turn away from. How do we expect God to forgive sin that we persist in? He won't. How can we pray for a brother who persists in his sin and pray for his forgiveness? We can't. We cannot effectively do so. And that's what John is reminding us here. Now, he doesn't specifically and strongly forbid praying that something may occur that will change that brother's uh, mind, but we can't actually pray for his forgiveness until he, what? Until he repents. Remember Luke 17, 3, the words of Jesus there? If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And what? And if he repents, forgive him. What is the reverse of that by implication? If your brother sins against you and he will not repent, then what? Do not forgive him. Do not forgive him. Is that harsh? No, not at all. That's what God does. God forgives those who will repent, and we are to do the same. Does God have a forgiving spirit toward those who will not repent? Does he love them and desire that they repent? Of course. Should we? Of course we should, and do everything we can to get them to repent, and let them know how much we love them and how concerned we are about them. But we cannot extend forgiveness to them, actual forgiveness, until they what? Until they confess and turn from that sin. And so, I believe that that is exactly what John is saying to us here, 
that if you see a brother who is a sinning brother, and if it's a sin that he will come away from, repent of, and confess, then by all means pray for his forgiveness, and God will give him life. That is, he'll, he'll forgive him. He'll, give, he'll forgive that brother. But there is a sin leading to death, and there's no point in praying for that. What is that sin? The unpardonable sin? No, the unpardoned sin. Unpardoned why? Because the brother who's involved in that sin will not come away from it. He persists in it. Should we love him? Absolutely. Must we let him know we love him? Absolutely. Must we be patient in making every effort to bring him back to us? Yes. But we can't obviously forgive him when he is sinning and will not turn from that sin. We've pointed out before that there's a vast difference between extending forgiveness and in manifesting a forgiving spirit. Every Christian should have a forgiving spirit toward everyone who stands in need of repentance. We should have a loving, forgiving spirit desiring that they repent. But we cannot absolutely extend forgiveness until repentance occurs. You've heard situations probably, and I've mentioned this illustration before, where people have had family members brutally murdered, and the perpetrator is in prison, and the family member goes on television or whatever makes a statement, well, I, I forgive him. I forgive him. And many people would say that's a wonderful thing. No, the wonderful thing is for the person who committed the crime to truly repent, come to the Lord, and then that family member can say, if that family member is a Christian, obviously I forgive him. What the family member can say is, I don't hold the kind of animosity that's going to eat me up. I don't hold the kind of hatred that is going to cause me to lose my soul, etc. But I cannot forgive something that a person has done that's against the will of God who will not repent of that because God himself says he won't forgive him until he does repent, until he does meet the conditions for forgiveness that God has set forth. And so we must always have that loving forgiving spirit, but we cannot actually welcome into fellowship or back into fellowship someone who stands in need of repentance and will not repent. We can only welcome those individuals back into fellowship when they have met God's conditions to be forgiven, and thus we can also extend our forgiveness. Remember what we reviewed in 1 John 1? John says that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is horizontal among brethren, and it's vertical from brethren up to God in heaven. Therefore, we cannot extend fellowship where God will not extend fellowship. The fellowship that we extend must be on the same basis that God extends fellowship because we must be in perfect agreement with the God of heaven. And so John is saying, tragically, there are those who will not turn from their sin and we cannot forgive them. We can do everything we can to get them to repent.
but we can't actually extend forgiveness and pray for that forgiveness for them until they indicate that they desire to be forgiven and are willing to repent. And then in the final verse we look at tonight, in verse 17, John makes it clear that unrighteousness, all of it, is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. And we've already described what that sin not leading to death is. Everything that is opposed to the righteousness of God is characterized here by John as being what? A mistake? No. Sin. What is righteousness? Doing right. When people are not doing right, when they know to do good and they don't do it, or when they, when they do wrong, sins of omission or sins of commission, we say, either is unrighteousness and either is sin. Psalm 119, 172 says, all your commandments are what? Righteousness. If all God's commandments are righteousness, then unrighteousness is that which is opposed to God's commandments. And John says, it is sin. But thankfully, there's a sin, there is sin, generically, not leading to death. What is it? It's the sin of which those who are involved in sin will turn away from that sin, meet God's conditions for forgiveness, and be forgiven. But we cannot simply ignore the sinner and the sin. We must make every effort to convince that sinner lovingly, patiently, and through a loving process that that individual has turned away from God, needs to come home, and pray fervently that that sin in which he or she may be involved is not a sin that leads to death. That is a sin from which they will never repent, but that they will come home. What about you tonight? Where are you in relationship to God? Hopefully in a situation not as the brother described by John, who is a sinning brother, although we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God, as John reminds us in that first chapter again of this great epistle, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses, literally keeps on cleansing us from our sin. And so all those who are walking in the light tonight, have the full assurance and confidence that you are being continually cleansed by the blood of Christ as you continue that walk in the life and as you recognize that from time to time you fall short as we all do and you confess your sins regularly to the throne of heaven as you keep up that walk, you have the certainty, as John writes time and again in this beautiful epistle, that you know him and that he knows you knows you to be one of his. But if there's one here tonight who does not have that certainty because you know you do not walk in the light as he is in the light, that you've never come into the light initially by a belief that leads you to repent of your sins and confess Jesus to be the Christ and then to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins, do that this very night, that you might enter the light and begin your walk in the light. And if you need to come back to the light, having left the light for the darkness of this world in some way that has brought reproach upon the church in a public way that needs to be repented of in that same public way, we're willing and eager to pray with you and for you to a God who promises to completely forgive you 
if you will indeed recognize your sin is not unto death if you're willing to turn from it and come home to your first love. As we stand to sing, will you come?